Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I've been releasing every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. Now, I collect news articles along with articles sent to me by you, my beloveds, and others. So thank you for submitting. Unlike my regular podcast that I write out in its entirety before I record, this is unscripted, and I don't read the articles past the headlines so that you and I can react together. Let's go. Okay, guys, our first article comes from CourtTV.com, and the title reads, Father Accused of Locking Child in a Box Rejects Plea Deal. Out of West Palm Beach, Florida, we just starting strong with Florida. One of the two parents facing child abuse and false imprisonment charges of their adopted son in an 8-foot by 8-foot box for hours at a time in January of 2022 rejected a plea deal on Tuesday. Timothy Ferreter appeared live via Zoom in a pretrial court hearing conducted by Circuit Judge Howard Coates Jr. Jury selection is scheduled to start at 10 a.m. Friday in separate trials for Timothy and his wife, Tracy. Tuesday's hearing lasted three hours. Tim rejected a deal by the state attorney's office for 24 months in prison and five years probation. If found guilty... He faces 35 years behind bars and will be tried separately from his wife. No period at the end of that sentence. The hearing also involved reviewing hours of witness and evidence. Reviewing hours of witness and evidence that will be admissible during trial. Who is writing this for Court TV? Uh, Tim's defense lawyer, Priya Murad contends the parents were dealing with a, quote, medically complex child with attachment disorders. <sighs> the room was used for monitoring the child and not neglect, the defense says. No period. Ring video shows he was only in the room for the longest of 10 hours at night on one occasion. Tim, the father, is 48. Tracy is 47. According to Jupiter Police, detectives were called to a residence in the 200 block of Crane Point North in the Egret Landing community on January 30, 2022, regarding a follow-up investigation about a missing runway. During the investigation, detectives noticed the structure had a doorknob and a deadbolt, both locking from the outside as well as a light switch on the outside. It was part of a three-car garage. Detectives also found a camera, a mattress, and a bucket inside the structure. According to detectives, the teen attended school but was confined to the structure during the remainder of the day when meals were brought to the child and a bucket was provided for bathroom use. That's the end of the article. I don't even really know where to begin. Wow, our very first one, and I'm already triggered. Triggered. If he has attachment issues, why would you shut him in solitude in a box? The fuck is wrong with people? I don't even know where to begin. And then whoever the person is that wrote this article for Court TV, I mean, come on, guys, punctuation. 
So then our next article comes from the-express.com, Daily Express US. And the title reads, Brain-Eating Cannibal Back in Public Life After 10 Years in Psychiatric Hospital. Oh, goody. Tyree Smith from Bridgeport, Connecticut, killed a homeless man and then ate his brain and eyeballs. Ten years after being committed to a state psychiatric hospital for 60, he has been released. Ten years after being committed to a state psychiatric hospital for 60, comma, does not make any sense. A man who killed and ate a man has been released back into public life after 10 years. Tyree Smith from Bridgeport, Connecticut, killed a homeless man and then ate his brain and eyeballs, according to officials. The horrific case made headline news, with Smith found not guilty of murder by reason of insanity after a July 2013 trial. In lieu of a stent behind bars, Smith was ordered committed to a state psychiatric hospital for 60 years. (laughs) And they let him out in 10 But now, 10 years after the grim incident, is that what we're calling that? The State Psychiatric Security Review Board said Smith was ready to be transitioned back into the community. Smith has been released from the facility, Connecticut's most secure, as of this writing. He will be living in a Waterbury Group home and is not allowed to associate with anyone involved in criminal activity. So you're telling him he's not allowed? Come on. The board stated in its report, quote, Tyree Smith is an individual with a psychiatric illness requiring care, custody, and treatment. Since his last hearing, Tyree Smith has continued to demonstrate clinical stability. Mr. Smith is is medication compliant, actively engaged in all recommended forms of treatment, and has been symptom-free for many years. During the trial, Smith's cousin, Nicole Rabb, claimed he arrived at her Connecticut home in December 2011 talking about Greek gods and ruminating about needing to go out and get blood. When she saw him the next evening, she noticed what appeared to be specks of blood on his pants and that he was carrying chopsticks and a bloody axe. Smith then allegedly told Rab he killed a man and ate his brains in the Lakeview Cemetery while drinking sake and grimly warned he intended to eat more people. A month later, police found Angel Gonzalez's mutilated body in the vacant apartment on Brook Street in Bridgeport, where Smith had lived as a child. Police later recovered the bloody axe and an empty bottle of sake in a stream bed near the Boston Avenue Cemetery. The defense's case rested on the testimony of Yale University psychiatrist Dr. Rena Kapoor, who testified that Smith had kept his lust for human flesh after his arrest, even offering to eat her. Kapoor claimed Smith suffered from psychotic incidents since childhood and heard voices that told him to kill people. She then said the voices ordered Smith to eat the victim's brain so that they would get a better understanding of human behavior and the eyes so that they could see into the, quote, spirit realm. Kapoor added that Smith went to Subway after eating the man's body parts. Why <laughs> Why was that added? You know, you just very calmly decide to eat someone's brain matter and then, you know, just like Subway for dessert. Am I right? That's dark. 
The report on Smith's release said, quote, he denied experiencing cravings, but stated that if they were to arise, he would reach out to his hospital and community supports and providers, end quote. End of the article. And I am bewildered, flabbergasted. I don't even know what to think. <laughs> you know, if you if you start to feel the urge to eat people again, you be sure and call like the hospital staff. I just don't really see that whole situation ending well. But our next article comes from theguardian.com and the title reads, An Alabama man vanished in 1995. Last week, Idalia cleanup crews found a body. Team Clearing Hurricane Debris uncovered skeletal remains that police believe are of a man who went missing on a road trip to Florida, folks. Florida number two. Uh, coming out of Miami, I guess. A decades-old car, a battered Sam's Club membership card, and human remains found in the water during a cleanup in Florida from Hurricane Idalia. Idalia might have solved a cold case missing persons mystery, say authorities. Crews clearing storm debris from the Steinhatchee River in Dixie County, close to where the 125-mile-per-hour cyclone struck the coast in August, made the grim discovery last week as they removed a damaged boat dock from a ramp. Donald Valenza, sheriff of Alabama's Houston County, told TV station WTYV the remains were believed to be those of James Aaron Toole, who was 72 when he went missing during a road trip to Florida in 1995. Valenza said contractors for the Florida Department of Environmental Protection found partial human remains in the water that had been there, quote, for some time. A law enforcement dive team sent down the following day discovered skeletal remains inside a submerged Chevrolet Cavalier car with a 1995 Houston County license plate. Further clues were provided by the retail warehouse membership card and credit cards that were also found, but Valenza said formal identification could not be made until the completion of forensic testing. A Facebook post by the Dixie County Sheriff's Office contained images of divers at the scene and said the county's medical examiner had collected the human remains. The car was also removed, it said. Toole, according to relatives, vanished after telling family members he planned to visit a sick relative in Florida. He only he worked only part of his night shift at a convenience store close to his home in Pansy, Alabama, then set off in his 1987 Chevrolet Cavalier after a brief stop at his granddaughter's house. No trace of Toole or his car were ever found, although a woman claimed to have found his wallet in 2020, according to the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's Facebook page, and there was a false alarm in 2013 when authorities pulled a submerged vehicle from Florida's Chattahoochee River. So Steinhatchee, where the remains were found last week, is about 180 miles from Toole's hometown. The hurricane left a trail of debris across Florida after making landfall, with some experts calculating damage at up to $20 billion, making it one of the country's most costly natural weather disasters this year. Uh, that's the end of the article. So, well, you know, for his family, I'm glad that he was found. I and mean, it sounds like that was him. So, you know, I'm happy for his family. Good stuff. 
Okay, guys, our next article comes from CNN.com. Title reads, Parents of nine-year-old who went missing on New York camping trip received a ransom note before daughter was found, governor says. Yikes. So Charlotte Cena, the nine-year-old girl who went missing while on a camping trip at a New York state park two days ago, has been found safe and a suspect has been detained, authorities said Monday evening. Before she was found, Charlotte's parents received a ransom note at their home. New York Governor Kathy Hochul told CNN's Anderson Cooper on Monday evening. At a late-night news conference, the governor outlined the meticulous work by authorities after they found the note and the crucial piece of evidence that led to a break in the case. Hochul said the break in the case came around 4.20 a.m. Eastern Time Monday when the suspect drove to Charlotte's parents' home and put a ransom note in the mailbox. Quote, he literally drove up to the family's mailbox assuming they were not home, Hochul said, adding Charlotte's parents were still at the campground searching for their daughter. The family's home was being monitored by state police, but the officers had been sent to another call in the area when the suspect dropped off the note. Police tested the document for fingerprints and searched law enforcement databases to see if they could find a match. On their second try, they got back results identifying fingerprints left on the note belonged to 47-year-old Craig Nelson Ross Jr., the governor said. Investigators were able to determine Ross was living in a camper behind his mother's residence and used two SWAT teams to make entry. Quote, they had what they call a dynamic entry tactical maneuver, and within the camper they located the suspect. I'm assuming they just kicked the door down. Police say he resisted being taken into custody and sustained minor injuries. They found Charlotte hidden in a cabinet in the camper. Quote, she knew she was being rescued, the governor said. She knew she was in safe hands. Charlotte appeared to be in good health, but taken to a hospital, which is customary, the governor said. Well, duh. Ross was still being questioned Monday night. At this moment, charges have not been brought, but they are fully expected, Hochul said. Earlier, the governor told CNN that cell phone pings from people in the area where Charlotte was last spotted also helped the authorities find her. Quote, they were checking all the different cell phones that had been in the vicinity of this park, she said. Authorities also had information from those who came to the park as campers because they had to register and people were for were there for the day paid on entrance fee. Quote, so you could start circling around possible suspects based on the cell phone data, who was in the park, and also then ultimately the ransom note, she said. The combination of those factors led authorities to a suspect and to Charlotte. Quote, it was extraordinary to see how they traced it down to an individual's home. The home was surrounded by law enforcement and helicopters, and they were able to bring her to safety. And not long after, she was in the arms of her parents at a hospital, end quote. So, another title below says Charlotte was riding alone when she vanished. So, Charlotte, who was camping in Moreau Lake State Park with her family, went on a bike ride with close friends around dinner time and never returned. Charlotte had last been seen around 6.15 p.m. riding her bike in one of the park's loops. She had done a few loops with her friends and wanted to do one more by herself, Hochul said at a Sunday news conference. The loop takes about five minutes, police said. Okay. 
Her mother reported her missing around 6.45 p.m. after Charlotte's bike was found in the loop without her. So anyway, she's been found safe and sound, and we are all definitely grateful for that. And then our next article comes from allthatsinteresting.com, and the title reads, Brazilian woman dies after she was allegedly poisoned by fortune teller who told her she only had days to live. I'm already shaking my head. Uh, Fernanda Silva Valos de Cruz Pinto's family, well, that's a long name, says she suddenly fell ill after eating a chocolate given to her by a woman posing as a palm reader. A 27-year-old woman died in Brazil after eating chocolate given to her by a palm reader who told her she would soon die. Fernanda was walking through the city center of a town I can't pronounce in Brazil, she was stopped by an elderly woman who asked if she could tell her her fortune. So Fernanda accepted, and the palm reader told her she only had, quote, a few days to live, according to the New York Post. The fortune teller then gave the girl a wrapped chocolate before they parted ways. Not thinking anything of it, she ate the chocolate. Quote, as the candy was packaged, it didn't occur to her that it could pose any danger, her cousin, Bianca, Christina, told Brazilian news outlets. And as she was hungry, she decided to eat it. So within hours of eating the chocolate, she began to feel very sick, developing symptoms like severe stomach aches, impaired vision, and vomiting. However, she also suffered from an ulcer and and gastritis, so she and her family didn't think too much of it until it was too late. Quote, she was an old lady. I ate it because it was well sealed, right? But I've been feeling so weak since then. She texted a family member, according to the Daily Mail. Quote, my heart is racing. I've thrown up, but I have this taste in my mouth. So bitter, bad. My vision is blurry. I'm so weak. End quote. The family member finally took her to the hospital when her symptoms worsened. At that point, she was bleeding from her nose and foaming at the mouth. She died on August 4th, one day after she ate that chocolate. Now, an autopsy report has revealed she had high amounts of sulfotep and terbufose in her body, chemicals found in pesticides that are widely available in Brazil. Quote, these substances are highly prevalent in cases of poisoning and intoxication in Brazil due to their easy access, despite being regulated by the Ministry of Agriculture, Livestock, and Supply, said the head of the chemistry and toxicology laboratory that analyzed samples taken from her body during the autopsy. Officials have not yet been able to confirm whether the chemicals came from the chocolate. The local police's homicide squad is investigating her death. They are searching for the fortune teller that gave her the chocolate but have not yet been able to identify her and no arrests have been made. Her family was baffled by the bizarre nature of her death. Family members said they don't know why anyone would have wanted to kill her. Quote, I just know that Fernanda wasn't a person involved in parties, chaos, anything like that, said her cousin. I don't see anyone having a reason to do this to her, but we don't know anyone's heart. If it was someone who ordered the killing or if the fortune teller killed her because she wanted to, only police will find out. She left behind a nine-year-old daughter with special needs. Oh, no. Just a few months before her death, another woman in Brazil died after eating poisoned chocolate. 
I mean, that kind of sounds like a female serial killer's M.O. I mean, that's pretty par for the course. Most serial killers that are women poison, or they do things that, you know, kind of keep them from getting their hands dirty, so to speak, metaphorically, physically. But most female serial killers are poisoners, so, I mean, it makes sense to me, right? So 54-year-old Lindasi received a package from a courier on May 20th containing chocolates. At first, she refused to eat them as she had received multiple threatening phone calls and messages on social media until her ex-husband told her they were a birthday gift from him. Both she and her son tried the chocolates, but her son spat them out and said they tasted bad. But she continued to eat them, and shortly after, she fell violently ill, her eyes rolling back in her head and her body contracting, her sister said. Now, that woman's ex-husband has since said he was joking when he claimed the chocolates were from him and said he had no idea who sent them. Her sister said the two have a good relationship and that she does not believe he would have done this. Police are currently investigating the ex-girlfriend of one of... uh, that woman's former partners as the main suspect, but that that doesn't really make sense for the other girl. I don't know. I don't know. Something's going on down in Brazil, guys. Okay, our next article comes from NBCNews.com. Title reads, 11-year-old arrested and charged in shooting of two teens at Florida football practice. I feel like some of you guys are looking for Florida stuff specifically now. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? It's fine. An 11-year-old boy is accused of shooting two 13-year-olds after they had scuffled at a youth football practice in Central Florida on Monday night. The boy was arrested and booked on a single charge of second-degree attempted murder after the incident at the Northwest Recreation Complex in Apopka, outside Orlando, police said. That's not good, Apopka Police Chief Mike McKinley told reporters. We shouldn't have 11-year-olds that have access to guns and think they can resolve a dispute with a firearm. End quote. The call for help came at 8.18 p.m. and officers arrived at 8.24 p.m. The young suspect and the victims had fought earlier in the evening during practice at the complex's field of fame before the dispute spilled into the parking lot, officials said. This kid was 11. The 11-year-old retrieved a gun from his mother's car and fired one shot, hitting a boy in the arm and another in the torso. It was a crowded scene, and the gunfire could have led to more dire results. One of the boys remained no, one of the boys remained stable in the hospital, and the other was released. Quote, "We all thank God nobody was hurt more seriously than what they were," he said. "This could have been a very tragic incident." The gun was in a box in the shooter's mom's car, but it was not locked, as it should have been, said McKinley, who added that the suspect's parent is also likely to face charges for not securing the gun. A security camera allegedly captured the incident and showed the victims running from the shooter when he pulled the trigger. Wow. Having a disagreement and picking on each other at football practice constitutes needing to shoot someone? What the hell? Our next article comes from, uh, it looks like, NBCNews.com, and the title reads, Daughters Fighting for Justice in 1988 Murder of Oklahoma Woman Mary Morgan Pewitt. Her face looks familiar. On June 4th, 1988, 25-year-old Mary Morgan Pewitt was found stabbed to death in her Comanche, Oklahoma home. 
It was a scene no child or person should ever have to witness. Quote, we got out of the car and we were excited because we were home. Kira Lowe told Dateline, we were going to see our mom. It was the morning of June 4th, 1988. Kira, then seven, and her younger sister, Amber, were getting dropped off at their home after spending the night with their grandmother. The girls raced to the door and knocked, but got no answer. Quote, but yet her car was there, Kira remembered. So the girls decided to climb up to their mother's bedroom window. I helped Amber climb up, Kira told Dateline. My mom was pretty much on full display in three big pane windows with blood everywhere. End quote. And here's a picture of her in the article, and she was gorgeous. Mary had been murdered, and she was only 25 years old. So Kira told Dateline that she and her sister spent their early years in Comanche, Oklahoma. It's a small town America. Everybody knew everybody, she recalled. Very community-based. So growing up in Comanche, Kira said, was fun. Quote, our house backed up into the playground. So we had our own playground essentially in our backyard. It was a lot of playing over the swings and the merry-go-rounds and then just riding bikes throughout the neighborhood. End quote. So Kira's younger sister, Amber, recalled Comanche life as well. Quote, it's a one-stoplight town. We were out playing in the dirt all of the time. Kira said that they only saw their father every other weekend, so the girls shared a particularly special bond with their mother. Quote, I remember she was going to beauty school, so we kind of were her Barbies to practice on at home. The girls were not only Mary's Barbies, they were also her favorite sous chefs. She would cook with us, Kira recalled. She liked making snow ice cream. So Amber told Dateline that their mother was her best friend. If I didn't want to go to school, I didn't have to, she said. I was her tag-along buddy to whatever she was doing that day. On June 3, 1988, Mary was working at Harold's Club, a bar in Comanche. Quote, my mom was supposed to be at the bar, I believe at six that night, so my grandma took us home with her. Kira told Dateline that their maternal grandparents lived near them in Comanche, so they saw them all the time. My grandmother worked at a nursing home that was catty corner from our house. It was, if not every day, but every other day that she would come over and see us. The girls stayed over at their grandmother's house that night and returned home the next morning. Quote, it was a typical morning, except my grandmother had to be up early for a Weight Watchers meeting at 6 in the morning, so we were there early. The girls pulled into the driveway of their home. Quote, it was almost like slow motion walking through it, Kira recalled. What happened after that, Kira said, was something that she repressed for years. Quote, for the longest time I couldn't remember, and then I started going to counseling. A lot of it became more clear than maybe I thought I wanted it to be. End quote. It's now something Kira remembers vividly, she said, of the moment she saw her mother's lifeless body in the three-pane window in the front of her house. Quote, she was just displayed in her bed where we could see her. Amber told Dateline it's an image she also can't erase. Quote, we looked in there and we saw that she was covered in blood, she recalled. Kira picked up the story. Quote, my grandma went in and I remember her coming out being very distraught and she ushered us across the street to call the police and my grandpa. 
So across the street, the girls waited. Quote, Amber had said, well, where do you think they're taking mom? I told her to the hospital. I had already come to the conclusion that it was that bad. End quote. And it was that bad. Their mother was dead. Amber told Dateline it was difficult to grapple with their mother's death. Quote, I still remember seeing her and what she was wearing and stuff like that in the coffin. The next thing I know, I was running out of the funeral home. End quote. Meanwhile, investigators were trying to figure out who killed Mary. So Mary was found stabbed to death in her home in Comanche. The OSBI has put Mary's case in their cold case playing cards program, an initiative in which unsolved cases are featured on playing cards provided to prison inmates. Mary's case is featured as the Three of Diamonds. Dateline has reached out to the OSBI for the latest on the investigation, but was told that at the time they had no investigators who could speak about Mary's case. According to NBC affiliate KFOR, Mary had worked at Harold's Club until midnight, and after she closed the bar, she delivered the day's receipts to the owner. Then she went home. Mary's, Mary was last seen alive just before 1 a.m., Kira told Dateline that a passerby saw her mother at their home that night. Quote, my mom was on the porch and my mom was telling him to get out of there, she said. Kira said that she believes the person her mother told her to leave that night was a man named Randy Benson. Quote, they had been dating for about three months. Kira told Dateline that she isn't sure exactly what happened, but thinks a confrontation could have possibly ensued. Quote, my mom was feisty. When she told you to leave, it probably wasn't like, please leave. Randy Benson is now deceased. It is unclear if Benson was ever an official suspect, but according to local news station KWTV News 9, he was considered a person of interest. Following their mother's murder, Kira and Amber moved to Texas with Mary's second husband, Tim Allen. Tim is Amber's biological father. So that's pretty much it for that article. And guess what, guys? I'm out of articles. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I might have shorted you one. Well, we're at, we're at 30 minutes. We're good. So another Monday has happened upon us. Rude. I know. But we'll endure it as we always do, as one must, as people do. And for those of you that work the weekend that might be off this week or at least the first couple of days, congrats. Enjoy. Go run your errands. Be good citizens. Make good choices. And yeah, so I guess that's it. Have a wonderful week, guys. Love you. Bye.